Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 144, December 18th to December 24th, 1863. Last week, we jumped around just a bit. We had a chicken on Longstreet who fights the Battle of Bean Station, a failed attempt to aggressively cut off the advanced elements of the Union forces around Knoxville. We also had William Averill finally striking the Confederate Railway, although the actual importance of his action is called into question. Finally, we checked back in on what's going on in Texas and Louisiana, which we visited a while back. Texas has been invaded, but we will see a shift in emphasis to the Red River Valley early in 1864. This week, we need to talk a few odds and ends. I want to maybe mention some support functions within the Army. I've had Civil War photography loaded into the chamber for some time, so I figured this week is a good time to pull the trigger, and we will get that out as well. Before we get into those, I want to talk about an interesting figure I have come across in my research, Loretta Henetta Velasquez. Before we talk about Loretta, though, we do need to talk about some Patreon content. And of course, we had our episode this month, and that was a movie review, and that was Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. And I think here, as we close out December, hard to believe we're turning the corner into 2024 here. Uh, but as we close out December, I think we're going to go back to the well in terms of the another movie review, and that one is going to be uh, The Beguiled. And I think I'm going to do something a little bit different with this particular movie in that there is a older version that has Clint Eastwood, and then there's a newer version that has Colin Farrell. And so I do kind of want to compare the two and maybe we can spend a little bit on the wear and tear on the home front uh, and how that affects the average civilians as well. So uh, this will be kind of like a two for one sort of special here as they are sort of the same movie, but uh, just a remake, one's older, one's newer, and we'll kind of talk about the differences between the two. Um, so I've never really done anything quite like this, and so I'm kind of excited to roll this out. I think it's going to be a little bit different than just the movie reviews that we normally do. So if you think that that sounds interesting, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description, and of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show, and they're always greatly appreciated. Now, what exactly is interesting about Vasquez is not simply because she was born in Cuba and came to the United States, but rather she did all of that, and then not only served as a rebel spy, but also a combatant. In terms of this figure, we need to understand that there are certain things we should take with a grain of salt. Vasquez, after the war, is in trouble financially, and in order to try to get herself out of that situation, she would publish her exploits, which some believe to be entirely fabricated. There are several points in history when individuals publish fantastic accounts to try to capitalize on the interests of the public. In some ways, this really has not changed. Everyone is more likely to buy a book based on a historical event if it is advertised, truthfully or not, as a great and unbelievable story. In this case, it's really no different, but when most of what we know about the individual comes from this book, then it gets a little bit murky. 
As I always say in the course of this podcast, in terms of what is right, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Now, I will say if you just look at the list of events and people Loretta meets, then it sort of reminds you of like a Flashman book. If you're not aware of the Flashman novels, they were written by Henry MacDonald Fraser, and they were about a cowardly sort of rogue character that just happens to get involved in a lot of historical events, including actually the Civil War and John Brown's raid. But in these novels, Flashman, a fictional character, will run into actual historical figures, and so the book written by Vasquez is reminiscent at a point of claiming to have met Lincoln and Simon Cameron while reverting to spying instead of actually serving in action. So there's all these kind of different factors that go into this book. But I digress just a tad. Let's try to piece everything together from the beginning. Loretta was in fact claiming to be from Cuba, but immigrated to the United States at a younger age, settling in New Orleans. I have seen where perhaps she claims in her book to be from a well-to-do family whose father was against the United States, resentful of their potential incursions into Central America. This could make sense, especially if they were setting their sights on Cuba, still a prominent slave-holding territory. Maybe this would also explain the eventual siding with the Confederacy if she was from a family of higher status. Once in New Orleans, Loretta would marry a Texas officer, who of course would side with the Confederacy once the conflict began. Reportedly, Vasquez was more interested in actually participating in the war than providing any kind of support from a less primary function. She would hatch out a plan to don men's clothes, which wonders exactly what role her husband played in this adventure, as I have seen multiple kinds of attitudes speculated. Now, cross-dressing was definitely frowned upon back in this time, and Vasquez would receive a fine for having done so later in the war when she was actually caught. We have also mentioned how burlesque shows, amongst other things, were definitely grounds for reprimands or dismissal on the part of a man, so this sort of makes sense. Now, her first husband is going to die shortly into the conflict, but not before having received troops raised by Vasquez under the guise of being a fellow officer. Vasquez would travel north and not only participate in Bull Run, but also Ball's Bluff, two early battles of the war. In northern Virginia, Vasquez will switch back into the traditional garb of women to spy into Washington, D.C. It should be noted that this is where she reportedly meets Abraham Lincoln, and this may be the Flashman portion of the program. She also had fought at Manassas and Bull Run as an independent soldier, so the exact level of participation is questionable. From being around Washington, Vasquez would be dispatched into Tennessee. At some point, there would seem that the Confederate Detective Service would employ her as a spy, but spying was not really what Loretta was into. She would switch back into her officer garb, of course giving herself the rank of lieutenant, and then she would participate at Fort Donelson and Shiloh in 1862. It is unclear whether she was part of the surrender or escaped but was wounded in the foot, having to head to New Orleans to recover, of course concerned of discovery. It would be after Shiloh where she was wounded again in the side and then discovered, being sent to New Orleans again for recovery. It was at Shiloh where she claims to have rejoined her regiment, 
she had helped to raise from Arkansas during the battle. She'd be accused of being a northern spy before the capture of the city by Farragut and occupation by Benjamin Butler. Having now seen the elephant, Loretta would then decide to turn back to espionage, where she would use men's and women's clothing. Reportedly, she would try to organize the rising of several prisoner of war camps in the north. This is interesting because this was also something we've mentioned in connection with Copperheads and the Knights of the Golden Circle. If you recall, the Knights would use the tactic in order to create a breakaway northwestern territory. After the war, though, Vasquez would travel to Venezuela. She had married briefly during the war to a Confederate officer, but unfortunately her second husband had died at Chattanooga. Her third husband in Venezuela would die before she came back to the United States, traveling with a child. It would be in her tough situation where she would publish her book, The Women in Battle, a narrative of the exploits, adventures, and travels of Madame Loretta Hanetta Velasquez, otherwise known as Lieutenant Harry T. Buford, Confederate States Army. Harry T. Buford was the name she had given herself during the conflict when serving as a man. Jubal Early, amongst others, would dismiss it as nonsense, but of course Jubal Early was very particular in the terms of versions of the war, especially when it came to James Longstreet, so that's kind of ironic. It's also interesting that the preface of the book does mention the financial need and having to write it, so it's curious that maybe there at least is a good amount of embellishing, if not maybe entire fabrication. I have seen some analysis that Loretta Hanetta Velasquez was not even her real name, so she used many aliases. The date of her death was unknown, although I have seen it most likely as 1923. Regardless of the level of truth in her account, Loretta Hanetta Velasquez was an interesting figure. I think there has to be some kind of truth in the story, so completely dismissing everything I think could not be the way to go. Although, I do love a good Flashman novel, so keep that in mind. At the very least, it does kind of give us a good insight into what maybe some people did, or at least some people might have been able to do, right? Women, especially during the war, right, on both sides. We have kind of talked about that in the past, and how a lot of them get directly involved, um, if not combatants, at least in spying. So that at least does kind of give us a good idea of an option that could be available there, right? Also gives us a really good idea about what individuals thought as entertaining before and after the war, right? Like, so we talked about it a little bit here in the beginning here when we talked about Loretta in that if it's a sensational story, if you advertise it as such, regardless of the truth, the validity, you see this in a lot of other individuals who write memoirs um, and especially say those who might have rode with a guy like John Hunt Morgan or they had rode with Quantrell and they write something that's you know pretty fictional. If not, there's a little bit of grain of truth in there. But people are going to read that. They're going to buy that book and read it. So obviously, it's a great way to advertise and it's a great source of entertainment for the average person. Let's talk about photography in the Civil War. While the American Civil War is known as many firsts, this was not the first war to have been photographed as there were wars in Italy or even the Crimean War that had seen photos. But the war between the states was the first conflict to be widely photographed. 
There are even a few photographs that depict combat, the first instance of such in history. But we need to talk very briefly about the types of photographs taken. Most of the pictures were portraits, which were incredibly popular, even amongst enlisted soldiers. There were some photos as being taken for documentary purposes, and the South having employed this tactic, but being at a supply disadvantage, they would not have quite so many, but they were used as far back as Fort Sumter. Now, photography, like economics, is not one of my strong suits, but the Civil War would mostly involve wet-type photography, which would produce a negative. Because you were producing a negative, you could mass-produce photos, something that under previous photo iterations you could not do. This was done by making an engraving or a woodcut. The negative would be held against a dark background, turned positive, and then could be viewed, being called an ambrotype. Because this was often against velvet and was more expensive, you could also get a metal version known as a tintype. It would surprise you to know that the resolution on these wet types was often better than some cameras today. There were also 3D photos called stereo views using two lenses and then combining the two images giving it a 3D view. I think we oftentimes get this idea of photos in the Civil War taking a long time and they did compare to an iPhone, but to successfully take a picture required something like 20 seconds, which really is not that long to sit and wait for. Now, some of the more famous photos of the war are probably of dead bodies. It's very rare to see a photo taken where the bodies actually fell. The famous picture of Gettysburg showing a sharpshooter, for instance, is not accurate and staged, the body being dragged to that spot in Devil's Den. I believe that many of the photos are using bodies from around the Rose Farm for the famous photos we see today. It's also interesting when we talk about these photographs and that there are a lot of, the bodies are often reused and sometimes they're photos supposedly of dead bodies, but they're not actually dead. They're just guys lying down on the ground, right? Um, and so you you often get a lot of different types of pictures and they're all very interesting to look at it's also very hard to positively id a dead body from a photograph of this time but there are some where we think we have a pretty good idea of who they are right i've seen some interesting articles about who the sharpshooter is for instance and that has been at least narrowed down to some culprits so there are a lot of interesting things with photography in the civil war and Photos that are still being discovered and, and put out today, right? There's a great photo that is actually from the Richmond area here that depicts a Confederate sentry and then also a Union sentry. And the Union sentry is from a U.S. Colored Regiment. So you see the enemy and the soldier in the foreground in the same photo. So it's very interesting to see that as well. So I do recommend there are a lot of great videos and articles and books out there about photos in the Civil War. And if that is something that's up your alley, there are certainly a lot of those that I highly recommend. So we'll talk about one of the more famous photographers, Matthew Brady. Now there are several who take good pictures and probably recognizable pictures during the war, but Brady is probably the most recognizable name. Brady was born in New York between 1822 and 1824 and had studied under Samuel Morse. 
You remember how we had mentioned Samuel Colt also have dealings with Morse. In the case for Brady, this was a very fortuitous meeting because Morris had spent time with Louis Jacques Daguerre, who had come up with the Daguerre-type photo, less efficient than the wet-type photography. When the Civil War broke out, Brady would wish to travel with the army and not simply take small photo portraits for the soldiers leaving for combat. He would be given permission by Lincoln, but was forced to finance the venture himself. Brady, though, would come up with a mobile darkroom and studio, which would be important, because not having such a setup was definitely a major drawback in the 1860s. He would also hire on several assistants, some of whose work he would also get credit for. They are definitely on the shortlist for best Civil War photographers, including Alexander Gardner, Timothy O'Sullivan, William Pywell, George Barnard, and Thomas Rush. This set is probably the lot you have not heard of. With their help, though, Brady would set up an exhibit called The Dead of Antietam. We talked about stage photography for dead men. This would be popular, although after the Civil War, it sparked the censorship of photos of the battlefield dead for the U.S. Army, as the realities of war were considered not something for public consumption. Despite taking many photos and even coming under fire in certain situations, Brady would have to declare bankruptcy after the war. Additionally, he had actually lost his eyesight, which had sparked the addition of his assistants as it started to go. Brady would die in 1896 destitute, which made his an unfortunate story. But on a positive note, we still see his photos of the dead or portraits of generals or even President Lincoln in use to this day. So in that way, his legacy will live on. Now, we maybe talked a little bit about army makeups in some of our early episodes, but I do want to mention a couple of support functions that are equally as important as the battlefield troops. Some of these we have mentioned before, so they should sound a little familiar. The first we need to talk about revolves around the key supplying of the armies. We have mentioned how important this, and we have seen firsthand where campaigns have been decided by lack of proper supply networks. Notably, we saw the constraints around the capture of Chattanooga and the Battle of Chickamauga. Logistics networks were commanded by different bureaus, which of course were connected with the secretaries of war on both sides. Both North and South would have chief ordnance officers, quartermasters, subsistence, and medical bureau officers. Of course, each of these bureaus would then be responsible for their respective fields. Union ordnance officers had the advantage on their Confederate counterparts, and I have seen it where the Confederacy probably had the advantage in subsistence. However, they were plagued by mismanagement and poor infrastructure. Remember, we mentioned the concept of impressment, which on the outside seems to be out of desperation, but we could also see how this might have worked had there been a better system. Oftentimes, these bureaus needed to coordinate with other branches in order to ensure success see the Vicksburg campaign, and their problems to eventually supply the Federal Army as it campaigned and besieged the key rebel city. If we also think about the amount of wagons that were necessary to supply these armies, and combine that with the fact that usually mule teams of six pulled each wagon, then we can realize that there is a lot of moving parts involved. Now, if you are the Confederacy, you might be able to employ enslaved for some of these purposes, as manpower becomes a major problem, especially as the war continues. 
remember too that the Confederates are generally operating in their own territory. As you need to establish advanced depots, then you are now experiencing more problems. Usually the Union Army would have this as being more of an issue. We have seen where there are constraints, even when having numerical superiority for federal armies, but lack of proper supply will halt their progress. Now with a lot of moving parts, there are usually different regions that were assigned to break things up. As you can imagine, delegation was key. Engineers and communications have been other support functions we have mentioned in the past. Now in the before army, we mentioned those individuals being topographical engineers and how these were usually the smartest of the West Point crop, mostly because there was a lot of math involved in that schooling, as we have pointed out. Because of this, the topographical engineers were often employed in public projects in peacetime. You remember all those introductions we did where a topographical engineer would be assigned to building or improving fortifications or maybe even bridges. Well, there you go. Once the Civil War breaks out, the Union Army will have a tad more of the expanded function, whereas the Confederates would continue to rely on smaller staffs. There are pioneer units on both sides, you remember. Rosecrans creating a brigade of skilled individuals as a pioneer unit for building bridges, boats, repairing or building railroads, or even building earthworks. Remember that John Castler is assigned as a pioneer, but these men in the Rebel Army were still needed in the primary combat function, so they could be spared or used by engineers if they were not in the line of fire. Usually the Confederates would be able to use enslaved individuals, contracted or borrowed from civilians to build their works, which again is more and more important given the amount of casualties suffered. When you are already relying on slave labor to produce food and money in terms of cash crops, then you can see where it will run into contradictions, and you also see why exactly Lincoln decides to hamper the Confederate effort in this regard. Topography also continued to be important, the Union Army having advantage in this regard, but then you also have skilled map makers like Jedediah Hotchkiss on the side of the Confederates. For communications, we have talked about how the telegraph became a main focus for the Federals, and maybe not so much for the Confederate Army. Both sides would use wigwag signals, i.e. flags, to communicate for long distances. Remember a while back we talked about balloons and how potentially they could be used. Couriers were used by both sides in combat, but there would be issues there. For one, your courier could be killed or captured, as we have seen in several instances already. Also, because they were traveling over distances and could get lost, the lack of having instant feedback to respond to a changing tactical situation would at times be a problem as well. Couriers, of course, would also be pulling manpower away from combat, which for the Confederates would again be a problem. We've seen it in a couple of major battles already where these couriers get dispatched and maybe they get lost. Maybe just the, as mentioned, the tactical situation just go ahead and changes and then it's not relevant anymore what they're trying to tell they're oftentimes a superior officer, right? So whether they go through with it, whether they, they don't, could prove disastrous in a combat situation. So we've already had several instances where that has happened. Mainly today, I wanted to mention the provost department and the provost marshals. Now, I'm not sure if we mentioned before, but we have mentioned episodes about, say, Marcena Patrick, who becomes a provost marshal for the Army of the Potomac, exactly who these individuals are. Now, maybe I've not really mentioned exactly what that means, 
A provost marshal was designed to keep order in the army as well as the civilian population. We have seen where the provost was trying to keep the soldiers from looting or foraging in areas, and they have also been present to prevent straggling or foraging in cases where foraging was against orders. Essentially, this was the military police before we had MPs. As a result, they would also be placed in charge of the various prisoner of war camps. Attached to a field army, they were in charge of the collecting of prisoners from the battlefield. The British had actually started a provost system and had used it as such for some time before the Civil War. Now, there were some problems with the provost guard exceeding authority or even enforcing unpopular laws such as impressment or conscription. Obviously, this is where they could run into issues, and combined with that with the fact that you're probably not getting the right kind of manpower to become a provost guard could be a problem. You would have individuals who were exempt from combat, invalid, or were just generally trying to avoid being on the front line. Remember that we mentioned the Union Army would create regiments of provost guard that were primarily invalids or walking wounded, and those were not necessarily good for combat, but they certainly could take over for heavy artillery units, and they were perfectly good to head for the front lines. Obviously, as in most cases, those who were trying to avoid military service could be corrupt or otherwise abuse their authority, so we might have that as a negative as well. Daniel Ruggles, who we mentioned as putting together a grand battery to pound the hornet's nest at Shiloh, would become officially the last provost marshal for the Confederacy. Remember, we talked about James B. Fry being created as the provost marshal for the Union. Provosts have been used in the individual armies prior. So this is something that we probably don't often think about, but it's still good to know. With that, we'll bring our episode to a close. This week, we had a couple of scattered subjects. We talked about the incredible or maybe fictional story of Loretta Hanetta Vasquez. While we've talked about photographs in the war, we managed to get more in-depth with them today. Finally, we talked more about support functions in the Army to kind of drive home some of the things we have been talking about in the narrative episodes. Next week, we need to head out to Tennessee, but mainly, we need to talk about Christmas in the Civil War. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be linked to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>